As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Aaron, and I, uh, it's my privilege to get to walk with you through Lent. This has become one of my very favorite seasons of the Christian calendar. I appreciate that Lent is a time where we can confront hard realities. We can be confronted by difficult truths. We have a space to bring the baggage, the things we walk around all day, all year, holding all this weight on ourselves, the responsibility, even the shame sometimes of not living up to the standards we have for ourselves or the others have placed on us. And Lent gives us this season to come and lay it all down, to confess that indeed we are sinners in need of a Savior. And this morning's text perfectly points us in that direction. I hope you were squirming in your seat as you heard Jesus say things like, it is more difficult for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just because we're here in a community like Upper Arlington in a country like America, but also just the time that we live in. As I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, this young man who is apparently very wealthy by ancient Palestinian standards, I'm guessing he would trade every bit of wealth he had for the magical rectangle phone in your pocket. 
he would be astounded. You would be a wizard to this young man. He couldn't imagine the wealth that you have just in what that one device does for you, let alone a car or a plane or a boat or electricity or medicine. I mean, the ways in which we are wealthy by the standards of first century Palestinian life are almost too many to be named. And so, when Jesus says to his disciples, it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, we ought to have a little bit of concern, should we not? We maybe should be squirming in our seats just a little bit. And lots of people, lots of Christians have been confronted with this text and asked themselves the same question that the rich young ruler asks in the text itself. What then must I do? If Jesus seems serious about the danger of wealth and he says things all throughout the Gospels, like, for instance, if you have two coats, give away one. If someone asks something of you, give it to them. If someone asks you to go one mile, go two. In this case, he tells the young man, go home, take all your wealth and give it away to the poor. And I, as a young person, especially became accustomed to thinking if Jesus says something, he means it, so we better do it. I started wondering, should I just be giving away all my things? And by the way, if you're feeling especially religious this morning and want to take Jesus literally, I'll be waiting outside the doors with a bucket. And uh, you can help my son go to college. And God will be honored in it. No, but scholars have wrestled with this. I wrestled with this. Maybe you have too. What then should we do? And this is the question that the rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus. Teacher, he says, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that God expects of us? What is it that God demands of us? What must we do? This is a perfect Lenten question. Maybe you walked in this morning with that kind of thing already stirring in your heart, wondering, God, what else must I do? What must I give up? How must I pray? In what way could I show stronger devotion to you in order to feel your presence in a way that I desire but have not felt? Or perhaps, God, how could I pray? What do I need to give up? What sin do I need to deal with so that you'll answer my prayer in the way that I haven't yet seen? Or perhaps, God, what do I need to do? What do I need to give up? What sin do I need to address so that you will provide for me in the way I have not yet seen? If you've had that hungering, that longing, wondering what must I do to get what I don't yet have, then you would feel the same thing that this rich young ruler had felt. It tells us at the beginning of the text that he ran up to Jesus and he fell to his knees. This is a man in real and true desperation coming to a teacher who was in ill repute among the the celebrities, the leaders, the important people of this community. And yet he comes running and he falls to his knees and he says to Jesus, what must I do to get more than I have? He asks him about eternal life, and when you and I hear those words, eternal life, we're probably thinking about heaven, about life after death. If you've been around church very long, that's how you get accustomed to hearing about eternal life. And yet, this guy being a Jewish person in the first century may likely, even probably, wasn't thinking about heaven, but was asking a question more akin to, teacher, what must I do to have the life that is truly life? What must I do to have the good life? Which is an interesting, remarkable question for him to be desperate. For him to come running and fall to his knees and say, how can I get life that is really life? 
And, and what we know about him from this text and from the same story in Luke and from work that academics have done on the culture and the context and the words that are used, this is likely a very religious young man who had become very wealthy and had a position of authority and responsibility in the synagogue. By every standard, every metric of life that existed at his time, he had done everything he should do and he had everything he should have. And still there was something inside of him calling out for something else, something more. And so he came running to Jesus and says, what else must I do to get what I don't yet have? And in Jesus' response, we discover that this question that the young man is asking is deeply wrong in at least two respects. And he gets one little part right. The first way that he is wrong is he comes and he says to Jesus on his knees, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and who Mark has been kind of putting a big neon sign above Jesus saying, this is the guy, this is God, this is the Messiah. In this moment, Jesus takes the Messiah hat off He kind of sidesteps and he says to the young man, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. We hear these same words echoing throughout the New Testament. In Romans it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, Jesus was actually good, but in this moment, for the sake of this young man, Jesus denies his own divinity or at least kind of doesn't observe it in this moment. And says to him, no one is good except for God. And then Jesus quickly pivots and says to him, well, you know the law, you know the commands. And then he just lists off a handful. He only gives them like five out of the ten, ten commandments. He leaves out the rest of Deuteronomy. And the young man says, all these I have kept since I was a child. What utter nonsense. You all were teenagers at one point. Can you imagine a young man making it all the way through adolescence without having dishonored his mother or father? There is no chance. Did he walk down the street and never once find himself lusting after somebody else's wife? No way. Did he never covet his neighbor's things? Absolutely not. Is it possible that he had never spoken a false word? No, because he just told a major lie, right? And yet he claims in his own delusion, his self-deception, his identity as a good religious person. Jesus points out to him, no one is good. Then Jesus tees him up with a test. He gives him the law and he says, here are a few of the laws. Why don't you recognize that you're not good? And the man says back, no, I've done it all. I'm good. And then it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus doesn't mock him the way I just did. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He sees a sinner in need of a savior. He sees a young man deeply self-deluded, believing that he is bringing to Jesus this incredible gift of his righteousness. And lovingly, Jesus invites him to reconsider his worldview. He says to him next, one thing you lack. Again, Jesus doesn't really mean that he only lacks one thing. I don't think Jesus is buying the story that this one man, God is good and this guy is good, but he only lacks one thing. No, Jesus is pointing him to another opportunity to discover that he has not done as much as he thinks he has done, and indeed, that all that he has isn't worth as much as he thinks it's worth. You see this also in the disciples. The young man, the disciples, they share the same religious worldview. 
they would have believed and had been taught, even maybe since childhood, that a person who lived a deeply religious life and had come to great wealth was clearly someone who was being blessed by God. This is why when Jesus says it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, it says that the disciples are amazed, they're astounded. Jesus is blowing their minds. And they they don't even react. And then Jesus says, children, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then they say, who then can be saved? If the rich can't make it, none of us have a chance. This is their worldview that the wealth, the accumulation of things and of goods was the proof a person had to demonstrate their goodness, their righteousness, their holiness. None of us would ever believe that, say, the size of the house or the car in our driveway was a validation of our worth as a person. But back then it was a problem. And so the rich young ruler was caught up not only in self-delusion around his religious righteousness, but he had an identity, a safety, a trust, an idol built up in his wealth because he believed that that wealth was a validation of who he was. On, on those days where maybe he believed he hadn't done enough, he could look at all he had done, all he had achieved, all that he had, and say, oh no, I am good. And you can't help but wonder if this man who is so desperate for more, who comes running to Jesus and falls to his knees and then says kind of some version of, I've done it all and I have it all, if he's really just looking for Jesus to say, now you're good. You already have eternal life. You're doing amazing, buddy. Be on your way. Instead, Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go back home, take all that you have and give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. So he's offered this young man the opportunity. Stop trusting in the law. Stop trusting in your own righteousness, your ability to keep up, to try harder, to do better, to earn your way into God's favor. Stop trusting in your things and the identity that comes with them, what the people around you believe about you because of all the nice shiny stuff that you have assembled. Stop trusting in this worldly human stuff and instead come and trust in me and me alone. That is what Jesus offers the young man, and the young man on his knees is dejected because he came in search of eternal life, and he was offered it. Jesus made him an offering of eternal life, and the man stands up and he walks away because the cost of eternal life was greater than he was willing to pay. He loved his achievements. He loved his things more than he was willing to love God. He trusted in himself more than he was willing to trust in a savior. Jesus had confronted him with his failure before the law, with the emptiness of worldly possessions which will pass away, and the man returned dejected back to what he knew, back to what he really trusted in. It's kind of like you might imagine when the man came running, saying, what must I do to get what I don't have, but really wanting validation, he was offering up to Jesus and saying, look, teacher, at all I've done. Look at all I have. What else could I do to have eternal life? And what he saw as a gift, Jesus reveals, it's not a gift at all. It's chains. It's slavery. It's bondage. The very thing you think you bring to the table, your righteousness, Paul calls them filthy rags, garbage. 
your things that you think are going to save you. These things are binding you in slavery. What you think is giving you life and what you hope if you get a little bit more of it, you'll have life eternal. No, those very things are killing you, Jesus says to the young man. Your belief in doing it yourself, your belief in slavishly following the law, following religious order and code, in assembling enough stuff, the things you think are a gift are in fact chains that bind. And we are susceptible to that same thing today. We can walk into church each week believing either that we have done enough that this week we can come in and kneel before God and he will love us for we have had it together for seven days. Or we can come in and look at somebody else who has more than we have or seems to have done more than we've done and we can shame ourselves and be bound up with guilt and shame And despair because we think if we just tried a little harder, we could have done what they've done. We could have achieved what they've achieved. And what Jesus offers us is not another program of bondage that tells us, go and follow these laws, go achieve these things, go amass this wealth. Instead, Jesus offers to set us free. And we're so tempted to run back to our chains like the young man did. Because what is bondage has started to feel maybe like a nice warm sweater. A comfy blanket that reassures us that we indeed are in charge, that we are enough, that if we just try a little bit harder, we could get it this time. And the gospel takes off our chains, calls us to leave behind our efforts to be good enough for God or good enough for the world or good enough to quiet that part of ourselves that doesn't believe we're good enough and instead to trust wholly, completely, and only in Jesus who came to this earth to offer himself up on the cross, to offer us the forgiveness of the sins that we can't help but bring every time we come into God's presence, but also to make a way for you and I to become children of God. And it is because we are children of God that all the rest of the things that God promises, all of them come to us because through Jesus Christ, we are made children of the Father. It's no mistake that right before this text about the rich young ruler, we have the story of the children who try to come to Jesus. And the disciples see these children who on the social hierarchy of Judaism were lower even than slaves. These children try to come to Jesus and the disciples are like, no way. They haven't done enough. They don't have enough. Keep them at a distance. The teacher doesn't have time for them. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. And then he says to his disciples, in fact, unless you come to me like one of these little children, You can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then as the disciples are marveling at what Jesus is saying about the wealthy not being able to enter heaven, Jesus calls them children. He reiterates over and over and over again that you do not receive the gift of eternal life because of anything you've done or anything you have, but because you have been made through the offering of grace by Jesus Christ, a child of God. It is an inheritance for those who enter into the kingdom through Christ. And that's the one word that the rich young ruler gets right in his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if I came to your house and I said, what must I do to get into your will? How many times do I need to rake the leaves before you'll write me into the will? You would look at me kind of funny, wouldn't you? Now, the inheritance is for the children, isn't it? And so this young man who is so convinced that it's on him is willing to say, what can I do to inherit something? 
and the good news of Jesus Christ for him that he walked away from. And for you this morning that I encourage you to respond to in faith for the first time or the thousandth time is that the offering of becoming a child of God and all the inheritance that comes with it comes only by grace, which comes only by faith. As we respond in obedience to say to Jesus, Jesus, I trust in you and you alone. Would you come? Would you save? Would you restore? Would you heal? Would you forgive? Would you make me again a child of the Father that I might inherit all you have for me? That faith is how the chains of law and of wealth and of idolatry, of self-delusion and despair, that's how the chains come off. And Jesus, through the gospel, sets us free. Let's pray. Father, I ask that whatever chains we came in wearing this morning, chains of shame or of guilt, chains of pride, delusion, chains of idolatry, trusting in something other than you, I pray that you would, in the midst of our worship and our prayer, break those chains. Free us through faith. Free us through the free gift of grace. Free us through your gospel to live lives of devotion to you and to you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.